Welcome to another episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. My name is Clark Ollers. And I'm Serge Antonin. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss incidents around the country where the police got it right and why, in, in my judgment, it was almost a miracle that the police got it right. Serge and I are very conscious of the fact that we are critical of law enforcement when we believe things aren't handled well. And we really want to make it make it clear to our listeners that we try to be fair in our evaluation and we're bringing you some cases which haven't got a lot of publicity at all, but where we think law enforcement did it right. And then we're going to analyze how it happened and how it was almost a miracle that things turned out okay. Serge, you're going to start us off with a case out of Texas. Police in Texas may have thwarted what they believe was to be a mass shooting at the Everman High School homecoming football game. Apparently, the Tarrant County Sheriff's deputies got a credible tip that an individual was heading to the homecoming football game with a firearm that he acquired that day. They don't say whether he acquired it legally or illegally, but apparently he acquired it the same day. Based upon that credible tip, police stopped a vehicle and they apprehended Brandon Gibson and Isaac Cooper. And in the vehicle, police found an AR pistol, which is basically an AR-15 rifle that is chopped down into pistol form, and a 60-round magazine that was loaded. Doesn't say if it were fully loaded or not, but it was loaded. The suspects were clearly coming to do harm, according to the deputies from the Tarrant County Sheriff's Office. I've noticed story after story around the country of shootings at high school football games. Yes. And so the police really do think they stopped a potential mass casualty event in Texas. Absolutely. When you consider the fact that school events are usually soft targets, it makes sense. However, in this article, they say that not only were there police on duty there for routine reasons at this homecoming game. But once they got the tip, they uh, added additional officers for, you know, for the safety of the attendees. And they say approximately 1,500 people were at the game. And they were able to to pull the car over before it even got got to the game. At one of the entrances, as it was uh, waiting to to enter the stadium area or stadium parking area, they, an alert officer, observed the vehicle and they pulled it over and apprehended three people. One was a juvenile who was not named and he was later released to his parents. Serge, where is Everman, Texas? Everman, Texas is a small town just south of Fort Worth, Texas. Great effort by the Everman Police Department to... Kudos and and nobody got shot. (laughs) Correct. I was about to say. The police didn't shoot anybody. (laughs) No shots were fired. Yes. The suspects were taken into custody without the use of deadly force. And, the, and most importantly, no person was harmed by the suspects. Or by the police. I know Perfect. some people are happy to hear that. Perfect. Now, now uh, my next mention is a, a case out of Memphis, and it didn't quite end as well for the suspect in this case. A man armed with a handgun attempted to enter a Hebrew school in Memphis, but due to their security protocols— 
he was not able to gain entry like we saw in Uvalde. Their so in protocols other words, a hardened were, target. Yes. And how? What was hardened about it? It was hardened because they had security protocols, meaning like alarms and locks in place that were activated properly and used properly. So he wasn't able to get in. But what he did do was once he couldn't get in, he just fired shots outside of the school. Police were called. Doesn't say if they exchanged gunfire, but he was shot by the police and taken into custody in critical condition. But no child harmed. No child harmed. Police responded promptly, were able to neutralize the suspect, and only the suspect was injured in this event. Another very good outcome. Absolutely. Now, in both those cases, Serge, it sounds like the tip came into the agency that took action. Yes, So our next case is very different, and I consider it almost a miracle that the police were able to prevent what happened. This was the next to last weekend in September. Basically, a Park Valley church in Northern Virginia's Prince William County was to be the location of a mass casualty by a man with a loaded handgun, additional magazine, dressed in black, wearing sunglasses, who arrived at the church, almost certainly intent upon causing harm. This is what's so amazing about this story. A woman in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, which is probably an hour away from the location of the church in another state, Virginia, was looking online and noticed postings by a man who, in the pictures online, he would take a, I guess it's called a selfie, he'd indicate a picture of himself shooting at the screen of his computer, which had a picture of the church in the background. Mm. The woman contacted the Anne Arundel County Police. The Anne Arundel County Police contacted police in Virginia. Police in Virginia reacted promptly to the tip. uh, Anne Arundel County apparently contacted investigators in Fairfax County, where the suspect lived. The suspect wasn't home when the police officers got to his house in Fairfax, However, investigators learned of a description of the vehicle that the man owned. They gave the description to police officers in the area, including in Prince William County. And police officers in Prince William County were able to locate and arrest the man who was armed at the church, arrived at the church with a mission apparently to kill and is now being held without bail. I don't know if I'd call that a miracle, but it was somewhat fortuitous that the police were able to, I mean, the timing was kind of impeccable, don't you think? Well, I call it a miracle, Serge, and the next part of our podcast is going to be why I think it's a miracle and why you think it's fortuitous. Okay. Because first I want to use a, I want to define a term for our listeners. The term is balkanization. It's usually spelled B-A-L-K-A-N-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N. It's sometimes spelled B-A-L-K-A-N-I-S-A-T. 
T-I-O-N. And the word means the fragmentation of a larger region or state into smaller regions or states. And it implies those smaller regions or states may be hostile to or at least uncooperative with one another. And balkanization historically referred to a region of the world composed of the areas of Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro, Albania, Macedonia, Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, and the western part of Turkey. The differences in the area of the Balkans were ethnicity, culture, religion, and other factors which led to grievance. Mm -hmm. And when you have a, a large number of fragmented parts acting in a manner uncooperative with one another, many people refer to that as balkanization. And I talk about in America, the criminal justice non-system being balkanization in the extreme. I've used that phrase, in fact, on this podcast. Now, how does that relate to our topic, Clark Ollis? Well, Maryland has 142 law enforcement agencies mm. with approximately employing approximately 16,000 police officers. Virginia has 340 law enforcement agencies employing about 23,000 police officers. So for the man in Virginia, the armed man to be arrested at the Virginia church, Mm -hmm. somebody somebody gave the information to one of the 16,000 police officers in Maryland. And that officer got the information to the correct one of 23,000 police officers (laughs) in Virginia. Virginia. So right off the bat, I say the statistic is statistically improbable. And I've often heard that an army runs on its stomach. And that's a reference to the idea that In fact, it's one of the reasons that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was so faulty. Russia didn't have the correct ammo. They didn't have the ways to fix the tanks. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the supplies for the soldiers. Yes. And so pushing forward, sure, the soldiers might be able to cross a mile or two or five miles into Ukraine, but they couldn't continue the combat mission as presumably American soldiers would have been able to do because America's military is historically very, very good at logistics. Okay. Well, if you think of the expression, an army runs on its stomach, I remember years ago being trained that a police department runs on its information. The information in the three cases we've talked about, two tips that went to, one went to the Everman Police Department, another went to the Memphis Police Department. Mm -hmm. I want to stop right there. I think it's amazing that the tip called into the police department, got to the correct officers. Yes. Well, I think the Memphis one was more of a 911 call because the guy had actually started shooting. So I think that's a little different or a little simpler. You it know is. What I mean? It is. Let's, yeah, yeah. let's segregate that one out for a moment. Then. Okay. I guess all that happened there was the dispatcher dispatched it promptly and correctly and responding officers acted appropriately. Mm-hmm. But in the first one, uh, the the town south of Fort Worth. Somebody had to call in a tip, and that tip went through either a dispatcher or a uniform or a, or a duty sergeant or detective. 
was processed, and then presumably a supervisor was notified, and the supervisor gave the information to a group of officers. Obviously, they had it the tip in time to put more officers on the scene mm-hmm. in anticipation mm-hmm. of this. Yes. But everything went pretty well. The description was sufficiently accurate that somebody was able to arrest and presumably prevent multiple deaths. This is true. Now, let's just talk about last night in our favorite city, Baltimore, where on a college campus in Baltimore, five people were shot yes. by a by a gunman. Mm-hmm. And the descriptions were all over the map, as far as I could tell, <laughs> and nobody was successfully detained. Is that accurate, Serge? I believe that's accurate. And in other words, there were shelter-in-place orders. There was I saw it on the news. You saw it on the news. You couldn't basically watch TV in this area or listen to the radio without alerts about this. Mm-hmm. And I guess we're approaching 21 hours later. Yes. And no detentions, as far as we know. And I don't know what the description is. Do you, Serge? I do not. In other words, literally, do you know? I'm almost certain he's African-American. Well, why do you say that? Well, because it's an African-American, an HBCU. I know it was an And it was homecoming weekend. So now this may sound like, and I don't want to sound like the seriousness of it isn't there, but this to me sounded more like garden variety street violence that just happened on a college campus, which is in Baltimore city. It was a, it's a homecoming week. There were events being held and it sounds to me from what I heard more like just garden variety street violence rather than a targeted, uh, mass casualty event that was planned. You know what I mean? I do. One of the things that it's interesting that you say you you presume the person to be African-American because of the target, I thought it might be racially motivated, meaning I wasn't willing to jump to the to that. But the point being, as of right now, neither one of us who are informed community members, meaning we, we are looking for this information, we watch mm-hmm. for it, know the gender or race of the suspect. We don't have any idea the age, and we have no idea the vehicle or wh- or manner of transit, whether yes. the person took public transportation or walked, or we just know nothing. Is that or correct? if he was a student. Correct. Yeah. So that brings me to the general discussion about police departments and information. Years ago, when I, when I first started in law enforcement, it was 1972. And the thought when was, I first started in life was 1973 <laughs> to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. <laughs> well, when in 1972, part of the problem that police departments believed they had was too little information. Now, cut ahead 50 years, and part of the problem has it been 50 years? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> part of the problem is too much information. Yeah, yeah. It's actually 51 years. Yeah, I know. But who's counting? Yeah, I am. (laughs) But part of the problem is too much information, meaning that there's almost information noise now. Mm -hmm. And a police department has paper information that they get every day, digital information in the just, I guess, in terabytes. 
The digital information includes words and images, physical information, legal information, and status information. And there's a time and review process and approval, which uh, it is designed to discriminate, to pass on worthy information, and to shelter less worthy information to the appropriate parties. So it's an information superhighway existing in every single police department in America. And if you think about Maryland, 142 law enforcement agencies, each has its own information process and virtually none have a, have a decent compatible sharing process. Yes. In my opinion, the sharing process is ad hoc, meaning it's invented depending upon the case with this exception, in extreme cases, and I mean this literally, there's probably a policy on nuclear war. There's probably a, a policy on a 9-11 type terrorism accident. And there's probably a policy on missing children and virtually nothing in between, meaning mm-hmm. everything else is ad hoc. Oh, really? This information refers to Baltimore County? Get Baltimore County 911 on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Well, which precinct, sir? Just get 911 on the phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, in other yeah, words, yeah. it's not, right? <laughs> So one of the things that makes me think about this was the D.C. sniper case. And almost all of our listeners will recall that no matter where they're listening to this. Mm -hmm. And the D.C. sniper case was what proved to be a team, a young man and an older man, an influencer, armed with a sniper rifle and a, a, a car with a hole in the trunk, and they went around Maryland uh, assassinating people. Mm-hmm. There were a number of incidents in Montgomery County, including incidents at Aspen Hill and in Olney. And the, I guess y'all call the face of the investigation into the D.C. sniper became Montgomery County Police Chief Charles Moose, Moose yes. who was a very popular police chief and member of the Montgomery County community and he wrote a book called Three Weeks in October, The Manhunt for the Serial Sniper. And when I was researching this topic and Serge was researching this topic for today's podcast, I came upon the news, which I did not know. Charles Moose passed away in 2021. So God rest his soul. I thought the book he wrote was a, a very interesting read. And by the way, because this is black and white and thin blue lines and it's the intersection of criminal justice and race, in the book by Charles Moose, every other chapter was about his personal struggles involving race in the within the criminal justice process and his rise to power mm. within the criminal justice process. So it's a it's a decent read. Okay. But the part of it which to me talks about the difficulties of information and shared information, that case involved agencies of federal and local law enforcement working in concert. And two of the major federal agencies were the FBI and the ATF. Oh, boy. And at one point, there was a description of a white van. You might remember that. I do remember it because we stopped countless white vans Funny in the you city. Say it. You were a cop at the time. Yes, I was. This is why I was, and still am a practicing attorney, I was driving back from district court in St. Mary's County in the height of this. 
And it was white van after white van stopped from yep. St. Mary's County to Columbia, Maryland. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was a white van, and it was a high-powered rifle. Yes. The ATF was asked by the task force to do a picture for the media on what the rifle likely looked like. And the ATF produced a picture within hours, and it was made all the media. It took the FBI approximately two weeks to get approval for the white van picture. Mm-hmm. In part because the bureaucracy of the FBI was such that the approval had to come for any information given to the public from virtually a deputy, uh, I don't know what they even call it, deputy head, deputy chair of the FBI, way, way up. Turns out it was wrong anyway. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) A shot was fired and somebody saw a white van, which was probably fleeing because a shot was fired. Correct. And that was what they went with. But in any event... It 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 kind of highlights for me that, that in other words, within a single agency, the ATF was streamlined and the FBI was the opposite. The FBI was bureaucracy in the extreme. It is impossible to get information out of the FBI in a timely way. That's probably true today if it hasn't gotten worse today. Now, I've said this, Serge, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. If I was a police chief, I would task encoders, meaning people in the community, I would plant information about the most serious case, whatever it was. Like, for example, if I was police chief in Baltimore City, I'd say... Stop snitching? (laughs) No, I'd say, let's take five people and give them information allegedly about the campus shooting last night Mm -hmm. in Baltimore. And let's ask them to report that information five different ways. Have somebody call the detective bureau, have somebody call a precinct, have somebody call 911, have somebody call uh, the police commissioner's office and try to give the information and have somebody call whatever tip line's been set up. Mm -hmm. And and what I would want to know is, who is in charge of the investigation? And when did they get that kernel of information that I had planted? And how did they get it? And I would study that process. What do you think of that idea? I think it's a good idea. And why do you think it's do you think it's a necessary idea? I don't know how necessary it is, but I think it it it's, it could be useful. Well, here's my here's my premise. Yeah. I have had clients call me Clients I've represented in criminal cases, a serious crimes occurred in Howard County. They have information about the serious crime. They do not want to be the reporting person Mm -hmm. because they're part of the criminal element. Yes. They know they're familiar with me as a lawyer and as a former police officer. And they say, they call me, say, hey, Clark, I know who did this. Uh, Please call and give this information to the police because... The victim was my cousin, my mm-hmm. cousin's friend, so yeah. on and so forth. Sure. I found it virtually impossible, first of all, to speak with the investigator. You, For the most part, I can't even determine the name of the investigator. You know, if you call and say, which detective's hand? Sir, sir, that's an as need to know basis. <laughs> okay. Can you get information? Just tell us. Or... Before they even ask me what the information is, they refer me to somebody else. 
because it seems my sense is they're just trying to get me off the phone. Mm-hmm. Push me to the next guy so I'm the next guy's problem. Push me to 911. Push me to detectives. Push me I'm to the busy. Front. <laughs> right. Push me to the front desk. Push me somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And so I've come to believe that the information is not likely to reach the person that I'd like to have it in a timely way or even to the supervisor or detective or officer whose job it is to take that information, which may be credible, and send it on and take the other and just record it. It doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to happen. So I'm talking about me trying to give information in a department of 550 officers here in Howard County about a serious case and feeling uh, perplexed, and and that's with a background of 50 years in this county mm-hmm. with a lot of familiarity about the system of criminal justice in this community of uh, 300,000 people. To me, if I had to get the information from or to somebody in Anne Arundel County with the hope that that Anne Arundel County person transferred it to the proper person in Virginia, I'd view it as, really, I'd view it as impossible. Well, well, Clark, I was, let's take Baltimore, okay? I'm not sure if face-to-face you would get the result you're looking for. If you went to a a, a police station, I think about the, the, the shooting at Brooklyn Homes. Everybody pretended they were deaf, dumb, and blind, even though police observed the crowd getting out of control and could pass on information. Everybody was like, whoa. And everybody's making jokes. Call in the National Guard. Do this, do that. So I, I get what you're saying. So who knows if somebody had a credible, let's say somebody there had a, a had credible information that some kids with pistols in their bags, I don't even know if that would have done Let me good. give you a piece of credible information that was from yeah. the after action report. Okay. Young people were getting off buses and asking police officers for direction. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? To yes. the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Park homes, which to in a city like Baltimore, which is neighborhood, neighborhood by, it's a city of neighborhoods. Yes. And historically, a city of neighborhoods who beef with each other. Mm-hmm. That should have jumped off the page to, to me. I've never been a Baltimore City police officer, but if I were a sergeant, if I were just made sergeant that night and officers were telling me that, I'd be calling detectives saying, is this important information? What do I do with it? Or at least like uh, Mo Robinson said, show up there yourself and see what's going on. Well, I'm assuming I would be there for that. Meaning I'd I'd be talking to the officers directly and seeing the young people get off the buses. My point being- Well, you would, but it didn't happen. (laughs) You know what I mean? I get it. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying, Serge, is when you think, like to me- among the many, many myriad problems in law enforcement today with the defund the police ad nauseum and every other problem, Mm -hmm. problems with use of force, problems with everything, I think one of the most critical problems facing law enforcement is how they share information and discriminate between information which is valuable and information which is less valuable. Okay. And I say that if if you think about it, it was one of the problems in Ovaldi. 
Mm-hmm. Because they couldn't even say who had the keys to enter the school and who had authority at the scene. In other words, it was, it was, that, it was that basic. And children were being murdered while allegedly trained police officers, both federal, state, and local. Not allegedly. We saw videos of trained police officers just not taking it, yes. not taking action. Hand sanitizing, all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you think about it, what was the what was the information that they had? Active shooter coupled with I talk about information comes in different varieties. Yes. Noise. They heard Oh, absolutely. Shots. In that case, you don't once yeah, that was yeah, that was yeah, that was a nightmare. Yes, yeah, so the so, but my point is that's an example of how information comes through all our senses mm-hmm. and so forth. They were literally hearing the gunshots. Okay. So my point is, I think, now I'll get back to why I'll support why I think it's a miracle. I think it's a miracle that a woman looking at social media in Anne Arundel County, A, properly assessed this as threatening because there's so much garbage on social media. And Serge, you and I share social media with each other once in a while to try to come up with topics for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And there is so much violence yes. on social media and threats of violence on social media mm-hmm. that, frankly, I don't think I've ever picked up the phone and reported what I've seen on social media yeah. to law enforcement. Well, well, I mean, that doesn't make it a miracle, Clark Carlos. I mean, it's not like she turned water to wine. She just observed something on no, on no, the, uh, social but, media. No, no, but, but wait a minute. But she, I, I don't think observing it's the miracle. Yeah. I think reporting it is the miracle. In other words, you she. Mean, you mean her reporting it being the miracle or the w- miracle or the way it was able to travel? No, no. First, I think the first miracle is that she reported it, that she properly assessed the danger and reported it. The second thing that to me is the miracle is she reported it to an agency that was 60 miles away. Mm-hmm. One of 16,000 police officers in a different state who had to get the information to one of 23,000 police officers in the in the state where the target existed, and they got it there. I just think it was fortuitous. Just well, up. we disagree. I think it takes it, it takes a happy happenstance of many many people using critical thinking correctly. Well, to, then how is that a to, miracle, Clark? That you're prevent, just talking about people doing the right thing. Because, no, it's not one per Serge, if you made a traffic stop. If I do the right thing and you do the right thing, things go smoothly. But no, if you Serge. drop the ball. No, no, no. Because, that, no, I, I still completely disagree okay. with you. All righty. Because, Serge, it takes, it takes a person assessing. Let me put mm-hmm. it this way. I've said for years I think that law is art, not science. Yes. Let's take sentencing, for example. There's a story going around in Baltimore this week about a young uh, young woman who was very successful in IT who was yes. murdered. Mm-hmm. And she was murdered by a person who was released as part of the release program of Marilyn Mosby. Mm-hmm. And the public's enraged because this man was a terrible, violent criminal. He was released. He committed another crime. The truth is, statistically, most violent criminals, when they're released, will not commit another violent crime. Statistically, it's actually in terms of murder. Oh, okay. Most okay. murderers, yeah. if they're released, will not commit another murder, statistically. Or get part caught. Of the, part of the reason <laughs> for that, though, is that most murders personal. 
Yes. In, yes. A, in other words, historically, it's husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, father, son. So or even if it's like a drug deal going wrong. Correct. It's a, so yeah. for most murderers, the mm-hmm. situation is they won't find themselves in that situation again. Yes. With the opportunity and the hostility mm-hmm. to follow through with the act. But the point is, it, it's very difficult to assess future human behavior in such a way that, in fact, there are all these. Uh, in fact, uh, around the country now, most release done by bail and so forth, they do what's called a risk assessment, where they take a whole bunch of factors, employment, drug addiction, alcoholism, history of violence, uh, contact with a family. Skin color. Well, that's not one of the risk assessments. <laughs> I'm sure but, it is. <laughs> but in, well, it's not one of the ones they list. Yeah, that way. you don't have to list but, it. <laughs> but the point is they take all those risk assessment factors and they say the person gets a grade, high risk, medium risk, low risk to reoffend or to offend pending trial. I think it's a miracle for somebody to assess the potential for a great act of violence based solely on a couple of images on pub, uh, social media and to communicate that and for a series of other people in the 36,000, no, I'm sorry, in the group of almost 40,000 law enforcement officers in the two states for the information to travel through that balkanized process mm-hmm. that is unorganized Without a with an ad hoc system of communication to get the information to the right officer and prevent the crime. Still don't think it's a miracle, Clark. Because think about right, this, ladies and gentlemen. This is a time that I'm right. <laughs> Serge is wrong. But what it's, if she? What it's if a she miracle. did all and that? And I invite your attention to two <laughs> weeks ago when we were when we were doing part one of the archdiocese. And Serge called himself a believer, but not especially religious. Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, Serge think about it. Though. Does not believe in miracles. Clark does. What if this whole event happened the same way, but the ending was different? Meaning, the, the guy wasn't there. He wasn't going to commit a shooting. I'll put it a different way. Would Serge. we still look at it like that because everybody worked in concert to get somebody there? Okay, Serge. I'll put it this way. How are you going to put it? If you take a hundred mass shooting events. Mm-hmm. And you research the lead up. Yeah, all one hundred will have multiple clues that were missed by family, friends, and law enforcement. And I agree with that. Okay, well, my point is, it's a miracle then when <laughs> when the system doesn't miss a clue, everybody works in concert and prevents the tragedy. Okay, Father Clark Ollis. <laughs> all right, Amen. So, <laughs> to kind of wrap this up. It is Clark Oller's theory, it is not Serge's theory, that the criminal, that, that the law enforcement segment of our criminal justice non-system is balkanized in the extreme, that there exists little or no effective way of sharing information, and that when information is shared successfully, preventing mass casualty, it's a miracle. Well, thank you. That concludes this episode. Thank you for listening to Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. We welcome your comments. And uh, next episode, we're going to read you a letter from one of our listeners that we think uh, will be of interest to our, our listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you.